All right. So last week we looked at Romans 11 and we're in this we're in the 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 story of of the book of Romans. We looked at Romans 11 and we were talking about the main point of who is all Israel. And the question that I asked at the beginning of the message is what does the the ingathering of the fullness of the Gentiles have to do with the salvation of all Israel. So this was the passage we looked at, Romans 11, verses 25 to 27. And I quote, I'm reading from the CSB translation, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. This is Paul talking to the Gentiles, non-ethnic Jewish people, believers. So that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I presented to you four different ways that this passage is, is, is interpreted, but there are two in particular that stand out, three in the particular reform tradition, but the two main ones that stand out are what's called the ecclesiastical interpretation. It's often associated with what's called covenant theology, which teaches that, that this, this is equating Israel and the church together and that the fullness of the Gentiles means that the elect Jews and Gentiles will be saved. So when all Israel represents both the elect Jews and Gentiles. It does not see ethnic, what we call ethnic or national Israel as an issue. It just sees that, no, this is describing the coming together of the Jews, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and in that sense, all Israel will be saved. And that's because of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in terms of why all nations will be blessed. Then there's another view that has, it's called the eschatological miracle view, which is somewhat associated with what's called dispensationalism, which sees this verse describing a future salvation of the Jews. And, and, and it sees the plan of the church and Israel as two different things. So, so almost the church is sort of a, par, a parenthesis because of Israel's hardening of their heart. God said, let me focus on them, but I still have a plan for just the Jews. The Gentiles are just a part of that plan. And they would see the covenant theology position as sort of replacement theology where the Jews are replacing the Gentiles. So it's like an ethnic thing, like ethnic Jews and then Gentiles, and, and, and a lot of it is seen through the ethnic, ethnic lens. So they would see a future salvation, a future conversion of Jews, which often, which for most people would see Revelation as a seven-year period where the church has been raptured out and the emphasis is all on the Jewish salvation as massive Jews will convert to Jesus Christ and then there'll be a thousand-year reign and so forth. That's a, a, a position. What I demonstrated was a bit different from both of those. Is What I said was I believe what Paul is saying is that the Gentiles are actually the returning remnant of the house of Israel that I don't see that Paul's saying that it's a spiritual thing necessarily, but it is actually a physical and ethnic reality. That's what I maintained last year. Now, one of the biggest challenges to my position is that when people think of the word Israel, they think of ethnic, they think of the ethnic people group, the DNA. If you go to Ancestry.com and you think, when you think Israel, you think of just the ethnicity. You think of Judaism. You think of the tri tribalism of of the ethnic people. But when people think of the church, they think it's mostly non-Jewish. They think of non-Jewish. So the church is almost like an ethnicity, in a sense, which mostly Gentile with some Jews. And then, and then Israel is basically an ethnic, physical descendants of, of Abraham. So that's a challenge. So when I say the fullness of the Gentiles is included in Israel, People are like, wait a minute, but how can Gentiles be Israel? They're not ethnic. They're not the same. They're not the same thing. And we tend to think of the name that believers have in Jesus as the church, and we see that, okay, that's what we focus on, Israel. 
doesn't exist anymore if you hold a particular position. So I would say yes and no to that. Yes, believers are now called the church in the New Testament. That's the name often given to people who believe in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, Israelite or non-Israelite. But in promise, in the actual promise that God made, salvation, believers are still considered in Israel to God. I'm advocating that when God made a promise to Jacob and the house of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, that Gentiles were included, not just spiritually, but ethnically. That's what I think Paul is talking about here. Last week, I explained about the, 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 the um, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, one of the 12 sons who has been told by God that they are going to be a populous nation, a multitude of nations. Today, I want to double down on what I said last week. So this is a part two of what I said, because I appreciated all the, the feedback that I got and even some of the good questions. I want to make sure you understand why I firmly believe this to be a viable biblical position. So there's two things that we must understand to understand where I'm coming from and where I think the Bible is coming from. First, we must understand what is salvation in the first place and why is it connected to Israel? Why is God always talking about the I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Like, what is salvation even about? Like, do we even understand biblically what is salvation? What does it even mean to God? That's first. The second thing we have to also understand is the various names of God's people throughout the Bible and how they are used in Scripture. All right? So we're going to start with the what is salvation anyway? Why does it even exist? Now, this passage today, this message today, we're going to pivot off of Romans 11, 25 through 27, but we're going to look at a lot of different scripture. So there are going to be times where the scripture is going to come on the screen and you can look at it and follow along. But because there's a lot of scripture, there are going to be times I'm just going to say, just listen, write down. For those of you that take notes, just write down the passages. Please go back and look these up. I have no problem with anyone looking at a question. You can touch the Lord's anointed this morning. I have no problem with that. I, I believe what I present is biblical, and if I'm wrong, I, I'm okay with that. There's a lot of people who are confident of their positions with biblical support that we don't all agree with. So this has nothing to do with you all agree with it, but I want to be faithful to help you understand at least why I actually believe it. All right, let's look at what is salvation anyway? From God, like what is salvation fundamentally? Let's not, we're, not, we're just talking about big picture. We know that it's in Jesus Christ. We're not talking about who does salvation come from, but what is salvation in its essence? Well, it begins in Genesis 3.15. So this is after Adam and Eve, they bite the fruit. God shows up in the garden and says, what have you done? And Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. Eve said it was the serpent that deceived me. And God looks at the serpent, and in verse 14, he says that because you've done this, talking to the actual, the physical creature, you will be cursed or you'll be on the ground. So whatever the, serp, the snake looked like before, now it's on the ground. But then in verse 15, now he talks to the devil, the spiritual entity that inhabited the serpent, and he says this in verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will bruise, strike his heel. All right, I got multiple translations in my mind, so sometimes I'm saying one from different translations. All right, so here is God making a it's, a, it's a curse, but it's also a promise that this woman, Eve, at some point is going to give birth to a seed, and he's going to crush your head, but you'll bruise his heel. Now, he wasn't talking about literal because salvation, it, Jesus didn't walk around the earth and just step on different snakes' heads, and after he stepped on a couple million of them, said, all right, salvation has come to the world. It's symbolic language, which means the authority that you will have in this earth will come to an end by this woman's seed, but you will strike his heel. You will have some effect on him, which we know is the crucifixion. Jesus died to establish that authority. At this point, it's a very broad statement. We have no idea how this is going to play out. Spoiler alert, we do. But in the narrative itself, 
When, when Moses wrote this, it's like, okay, who is this seed? Who is this seed that's going to crush the serpent's head? When is he coming? Where is he coming from? How do we get there? So then we move to the actual promise to a human being. We go to Genesis 15. And God meets a man named Abram. And he says this to Abram in Genesis 15. Verses 1 through 6. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? He was saying, that's not even my son. He doesn't come from me. So what, what can you give me? Because I don't, how can my name go on if I don't have any kids? And so Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and, it, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So here's the promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you have many nations come from you. And, but, but to do that, I'm actually going to have, you're going to have a child. You are. Now, Abram, Abram was old. He was old. We'll see in just a moment. He was old. So he was thinking, I don't think so. <laughs> but when God said it, he believed him. Even though Abram could not look at his physical body and see how it would happen, when he believed God, he was believing the impossible, believing something that has never happened in human history that they know of. No man of his age has ever, this can't happen. So in order for this to happen, I have to have faith that this will happen. And my faith is in what you're saying, even though I don't see it. And God said, because you had faith, that's credited as righteousness. This promise comes to Abram. Genesis 17 is when it gets more specific. So it's very broad. This serpent, this, this, this woman will have an offspring that will strike your head, crush your head. Then it gets to Abram. Okay, you're going to be the one who is the father of many nations. You're going to be a blessing to many nations. You're going to have an offspring, a seed. Okay, then he gets a little bit more specific in Genesis 17. Verse 1, 1 through 7. When Abram was 99 years old, 99, having kids. Now, just know that his wife was 10 years younger than him, and she's going to have the kid. 99 and 89. You're going to have a child come from you. Right. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am the Lord. I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. This is very important language. You will be the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring through their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. Very important language. He goes on in, in Genesis 17, 15 through 19. God says to Abraham, as your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down, then he laughed to himself. Can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? Now, this is, to me, this is the type of stuff where I appreciate about the Scripture. Because we kind of have this fear of God that, like, if we say something crazy, it might strike you down, like, you get in a car accident. Abraham is talking to God, and he's laughing, like, man, ain't no way this is going to happen. Right in front of God. It's like, man, ain't no way this is going to happen. I'm 100. She's 90. Yeah, right. 
So here's what God says. So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. I already have a son by another woman, by an Egyptian woman. So that happened. So Abraham's laughing at the fact that he had a child and that now Sarah's going to be the one. The Egyptian, Hagar, was much younger. But God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. So here it comes. It's a promise that God is making to Abraham. Abraham believes this promise and he's credited as being righteous before God. And so the promise now becomes a little bit more specific with Abraham. And now because he has one son, Ishmael, God says, no, 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 no. You're going to have your own son based on the promise that I made to you. You had faith that I would give you a son from you and from Sarah. That's what's going to happen. And that son you're going to call Isaac. So now it gets more specific. Then he says, I'm going to make a covenant with Isaac. I'm going to reaffirm what I said because I, I chose you. I said, I'm going to make a promise to you. So it gets down to Isaac. Isaac, Genesis 26, verses 1 through 5. It says, there was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give all of these lands to you and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. So you see, there it is. I'm making a covenant with you because of what I swore to your father Abraham. I promised him. I swore to him. So the fact that I'm making a covenant with you is because of the promise I made to him. And so he continues. He says, I will, verse 4, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all of these lands, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So now it becomes a little specific. It's Isaac. Now Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau. And so God gets specific. Esau will be, a lot of people are going to come from Esau, but when I'm talking about him, I'm going to build this covenant. The promise that I made to Abraham that, I'm, that is now reaffirming in you, Isaac, is going to continue in one of your sons in Jacob. So then God makes this covenant with Jacob. Genesis 35, 9 through 12. God appeared to Jacob, and after he returned from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation indeed, an assembly of nations will come from you and kings will descend from you. I will give you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, and I will give the land to your future descendants. So now it becomes more specific. Jacob, I'm blessing you, and I'm making a covenant with you. I'm changing your name to Israel like I did your mom and dad. I changed their names. I'm changing your name to now Israel, and the people that come from you, I am going to make a covenant with because I swore to your grandfather, Abraham, to do so. So this blessing, this salvation that's coming, as we see, it's fundamentally a promise that God made. And he's keeping the promise specifically to Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And now it's more specific. Now we know that Jacob is now Israel, and all the people that come from Jacob, Israel, are going to be the promise that God made to save, to eventually, well, he'll reveal that it's salvation, to be their God. Genesis 48, 3 and 4, we see this, we saw this last week. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make many nations come from you, and I will give this land as a permanent possession to your future descendants. The only other time in the Bible where this language is used, this kind of language is used, is in 2 Samuel 7 when God is talking to David. So it's being more specific. So it's broad, serpent, this woman will give birth to a seed that will strike your head. It narrows to Abraham. It narrows to Isaac. It narrows to Jacob and the people that come from Jacob, which we'll talk in a minute. He had 12 sons that, were, that, that, that the promise went to. And then it narrows down to a specific family line within Jacob named David. And so we get to 2 Samuel 7. 
verses 11 through 16. Yeah, we're looking at the Bible today. He says this in verse 11. He says this to David. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. By my faithful love, but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So it gets more specific. So it's David. So you got God makes an initial promise to the serpent, to the devil. Then it gets down to Abraham. Then it goes to Isaac. Then it goes to Jacob and his sons. His 12 sons are, are, are he got his 12 sons, but two of them get replaced, which we'll talk about in a minute. He has two grandsons, Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh. Then he gets specific down, those 12 tribes get specific down to this family line, David. Matthew 1.1, we know in the New Testament that Jesus is called the son of, of David. It's specific. It's that, that, that broad, who this seed is going to be, it works all the way down. God does not make these promises to anybody else but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he mentions this to David because through the family lineage of David is where Jesus is going to come. The promise of salvation to forgive the sins of God's people, Jacob, Israel, is going to come. Matthew 1.1 starts off like this. One, one, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So I want you to know right away the first gospel. So from the book of Malachi, we turn from Malachi to Matthew in one second. In human history, that last page of Malachi is 400 years from the first page of Matthew. So that's a 400 year difference in that one turning of a page it takes us a second and it starts off right away an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham he's connecting it back to here it is this is what it was about the only other person called the son of David in the New Testament is David's father earthly father Joseph in Matthew 120 here's what happened after, after he realized that Mary was pregnant and it wasn't by him, which would be an incredible Maury show. If Maury, is Maury even still on? Some of y'all know y'all watch it. So, so in Matthew one twenty, here's what it says. But after he had considered these things, the angel of the Lord, he was considering divorcing her quietly because he thought maybe she committed adultery, but he didn't want to put her out there, right? He didn't want to put her on Twitter. And cancel culture, right? He wasn't trying to cancel. He was an honorable man trying to do it quietly. Like, man, something happened. It ain't me. So I'm just going to go ahead and step back and let you, whoever he is, y'all work it out. I'm going to go ahead and just marry somebody else. And so here's what it says. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So that's the only other time the rest of the New Testament, son of David, is only connected to Jesus. Because that, that's connected to a promise that God made to David that goes back to a promise that he made to Jacob because David is in one of the 12 tribes of Jacob. He's from Jacob. That goes back to a promise that he made to Isaac that goes back to a promise that he made to Abraham that starts with a curse and a promise that he made to the devil. This is what's happening. Now, here's what's amazing. You know, we often know, we know this scene. Let me read this scene. Matthew 2, 13 through 15. We know this scene. Listen to this. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. 
for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, almost everyone interprets this passage as as Jesus being the true Israelite. Also, just like the old Israelites who came out of Egypt. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then in Exodus 12, they get the Passover and they get they, they get saved from that. So so everyone, most people would acknowledge that this passage is communicating Jesus as the true Israelite being like Israel coming out of Egypt in the same way that the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. So most people will highlight that. But there's another dynamic to this story that's amazing. When you consider the fact that Joseph, Jesus's dad, is told to go to Egypt. But Joseph, Jacob's son, was sold into Egypt so that he could provide salvation for the people when the famine came. Joseph, Jesus' dad, goes to Egypt so that his son can provide salvation eventually. Oh, I wish I had time to say more about that. It's more than just that. Jesus' dad named Joseph, and Joseph going to Egypt is, is saying something as Joseph got sold into Egypt, who told his brothers what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now Joseph is going to Egypt because Herod means for evil what is going to end up being the good of all mankind. God's word is amazing. This ain't Kurt. This is here. This is right here. So salvation exists because of a promise that God made to Abraham. He made it to Abraham. This is why you will hear, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Often. Because salvation exists because God is keeping a promise to Abraham, then to Isaac and to Jacob, and to all the people that come from him. Okay, this is well established. This is what salvation is. Functionally, Salvation is a promise that God is keeping. He's keeping his promise that he made throughout the Old Testament. And this is what we call progressive revelation. They get a little bit, but not enough. You, just, you believe what you believe here, and it keeps going and going and going and going and going. But Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. So when you believe God here, it's like you believe God over here. It was faith. They didn't know who Jesus was. That he was going to die on the cross. They didn't know that, but they believed God. Here, and so it was credited to them when Jesus showed up over here. It's a promise. Your salvation, my salvation, is fundamentally God keeping a promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now let's go back and look at Romans 11, 25 through 27 again. Here's Paul talking to the Gentiles And he says this, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, most of the theological argument over this passage and other passages is that Jacob is ethnically Jewish. There's no mention of Gentiles at all. So there has to be, God has to be promising something to ethnic national Israel because Jacob is all ethnic national Israel. That's kind of the argument. And then the other side would say, well, no, the church obviously becomes the people of God. And so God is including Gentiles into this. So the Jews that believe become a part of the church. What I'm advocating is that Paul is actually saying that the Gentiles are a part of the descending descendants of the house of Israel, not just spiritually. Paul's not, I don't think Paul's talking about spiritual Israel, like the elect believing Jews and Gentiles, but Paul is speaking of physical descent. That physically 
Gentiles were included in the ethnicity of Israel. Now, here's what I said last week to prove this point. Here's what I said. We went back to Genesis and looked at Genesis 48. We'll read portions of it again. In Genesis 48, we read some of this last week. Sometime after this, Joseph was told, your father is weaker. So he set out with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, or Luz, in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make many nations come from you, and I will give this land as a permanent possession to your future descendants. Okay? This is important. So this is a covenant. I'm making a covenant with you. The language is similar to what he said to Abraham. The only reason why he's saying this to Jacob is because Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. This is God saying, here's the promise I made to your grandfather that is now extended to you. And that part of that promise is that you will be the father of many nations. And I will give a permanent possession to your future descendants. He doesn't isolate anything. He just says your future descendants, those who will come from you. And then, and then Jacob continues to say this in verse 5. Your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are now mine. Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me just as Reuben and Simeon do. Now, this is what you might not know. Reuben and Simeon are his two firstborn sons. Okay? Those are what he had with Rachel. Remember, remember he had to marry his, he, his uncle tricked him, Laban. He said, let me, let me marry, let me marry, let me marry. Rachel and Leah, and he said, all right, go ahead. You can marry after you work seven years. So he worked seven years, and he gave him, gave him Leah first. Then Rachel. Right, so these are two of his, his two oldest sons. In the, in the community of Israelite, the oldest gets the blessing. That's, a, that's important. The oldest is the one who gets the blessing and carries it on. So when God says, make Ephraim and Manasseh to you as Reuben and, and uh, uh, um, and Simeon, he's basically saying, make these two children that are basically your grandchildren on the same status as your firstborn. This is what he's saying. Verse 5, let's read it again. So your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are now mine. Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me just as Reuben and Simeon do. Children born to you after them will be yours and you will be recorded under, and will be recorded under the names of their brothers with regard to their inheritance. So a lot of what's happening is God promised to give these people an inheritance to save them and give them an inheritance. So a lot of the, the way that Israel, the tribes are broken up is the what portion of the land did you get? Well, God is saying to Jacob, I'm going to take Ephraim and Manasseh and make them people who have land. Now we'll skip down to verse 17, still in Genesis 48. So Jacob's about to bless them. And he's supposed to put his right hand on the oldest and give him the oldest blessing and his left hand on the youngest. But Jacob crosses his hands because Manasseh is the oldest and Ephraim's the youngest. And when Moses, when, jo when Joseph puts his hand right here and here, Jacob does this. Now, for those of you who are from this area like me, this was the beginning of how you play the Congos. Y'all don't know about that. But so, so Joseph does this. Jacob, jo Jacob does this, and Joseph is like, no, 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 no. He tries to take his hands and put them back like this, and here's what happens. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, he thought it was a mistake, so he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, no, not that way, my father. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head, but his father refused. I know, my son, I know. You know what I'm saying? I think the exclamation point is there. You know, when you're a parent, your kids get on your nerves. You'd be like, hey, listen, I know what I'm doing. I've been you. You haven't been me. I've been your age. That's what he wanted to say. I've been your age. You haven't been my age. He said, I know, my son, I know. He, too, will become a great tribe, and he, too, will receive, will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his offspring will become a populous nation. This means a multitude of nations. Many different people. This is, now remember, this is all prophesied by God and a part of the promise that God is making to the house of Jacob, to Israel. 
that the one of the people, Ephraim, will become multiple nations, and God is still making that they're still part of the tribes of Israel. So he blessed them, verse 20. He blessed them that day, putting Ephraim before Manasseh, when he said, the nation Israel will invoke blessings by you, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. This is what I said last week. Here's what I didn't say last week that we must understand. Because so much of the challenge of understanding these passages is about ethnicity. We think of DNA Israel, ethnic Israel, ethnic Jewish, right? We think about ethnic. When people think national Israel, they're thinking of going to Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, or some other place. And these are ethnic people. This is what they think. Ethnicity is fully Jewish, so the promises to Jacob have to be fully ethnically Jacob, the DNA of Jacob. That's national Israel. There's no Gentiles listed in the covenant, the new covenant even. So it's talking about ethnic national Israel. Here's a problem, though. Here's a problem. Genesis 41, verses 50 and 52. Who are Ephraim and Manasseh? Verse 50, Genesis 41. Two sons were born to Joseph before the years that the famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest at Om, bore them, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn son Manasseh. God made me forget all my hardship in my whole family. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Okay? So we know that Ephraim and Manasseh become two of the tribes of Israel. That would, most people would consider national Israel, ethnic Israel. So here's the problem. Manasseh and Ephraim are half Egyptian. They're half Egyptian. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest at On, is an Egyptian. Is an Egyptian. So ethnically speaking, they are not fully descendants of Abraham, because they are half Gentile. They're half Egyptian. Now remember, this happened before God made the covenant. So God is promising to take these two sons of Joseph, Jacob's grandsons, Abraham's great-grandsons, and make them equivalent to the full-blooded DNA of the other ten sons. But they are half Egyptian, half Gentile from the beginning. So when God is saying, I'm going to make a covenant with these, these 12 tribes, uh, the house of Jacob, from the beginning, part of that house of Jacob is already mixed DNA. Yeah. It is not, foot so unless we're going to redefine ethnicity, <laughs> then they are based in an ethnic DNA sense that would make up what people call national Israel, two of the tribes, are already starting off as half-breeds. They are not full ethnic um, as descendants of Abraham whom God made the promise, and God decides to make these two. And remember what he said in, 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 in uh, verse 20 of, of, of Genesis 48. He said, so when he blessed them that day, putting Ephraim and Manasseh, when he said, the nation Israel will invoke blessings by you saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So the nation of Israel, all the tribes will say, man, may God make you like these two tribes. Like these two tribes will be significant even to the other nations, and these two tribes start off as half Egyptian and half descendants of Abraham. They are not fully ethnic in the way that we define ethnicity. So from the beginning, the house of Jacob that God is making a covenantal promise to, he's promising that these people will become, I will bless them and they will become a nation. And when I restore Israel, I'm thinking of all 12 tribes in which two of those tribes start off as non-ethnic. And one of those tribes, Ephraim, is part of his, his role in the whole promise that God made of salvation is to have many nations come from him. And it makes sense because he's already more than one nation. Yeah. Yeah. 
So by physical descent, not just spiritual, not just believing in Jesus, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, by physical descent, Gentiles were always included as Israel from God's perspective. So when God is making a promise to restore Israel, Gentiles aren't an offshoot. Now, they're a wild olive branch because they didn't get the law and the prophets and they didn't live for God. But they are included in this reality, even on a physical level, not a spiritual level only. Simply from the fact that even Manasseh and Ephraim are not fully ethnic descendants of Abraham or Jacob. They are half Egyptian and half Jewish, if you will. And God says he will incorporate the descendants of Abraham, not just in a physical sense, but in a Gentile sense. These distinctions are true. They're in the Bible. But what God is doing is he is progressively showing that what you thought was exclusively you, Israelites, ethnic national Israel, expands to include these people that you didn't know were in some form of relation to you. That doesn't mean every Gentile. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the idea of Jew, Israelite, and Gentile, from God's perspective, salvation always included them. From the beginning, because he chose two of the tribes to start off, is not even fully descendants by DNA. So God doesn't see salvation outside of Israel because that's who he made the promise to. Salvation is always going to be a promise that God made to, to Israel, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, who became Israel. But within that Israel nation, non-fully ethnic people are included and have been from the beginning. This is why I say when Paul says that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, that all Israel will be saved. Paul's not thinking of a, just a spiritual sense. He's acknowledging that there is a physical descendancy that is extended to the Gentiles as part of the covenant. But now we know that you have to believe in Jesus, so there is a spiritual sense. Paul highlights this in a minute that we'll look at. I'm going to get through this quickly. We started late, just so y'all know. So don't look at your clock at 12 and be like, man, curse going over. We started at 10, 16. All right, I'm going to say, this is the second thing I say we have to pay attention to. The dynamics of the emphasis of the names of God's people. I'm going to run through this for the sake of time, and don't, you don't have to write these down. I'm just going to read some passages. You just write down these if you want to. They're not going to come on the screen. I'm just going to go through them. There are many names for people of God in Scripture, many names. I'm going to highlight the most common ones and give some scriptural support for these. All right, Hebrews. Hebrews is a name. Hebrews in many cases, meant slave. Right here, you see this in Genesis 39, 16 to 17. She put Joseph's, actually, if you want to put them on the screen, Jeff, if you can move as quick as me, go ahead. It's up to you, but I'm going to run through these. So she put Joseph's garment beside her master until he came. This is when, when uh, Pot, uh, Potiphar's wife tried to uh, get Joseph to have sex with her, and he said no, and he ran out of the room, and she held on to his clothing, and then she tried to blame him. So it said she put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. Right? So Hebrews at times is used to talk about the Jewish people as slaves. All right? The name Israel, and we know that one well, right? Israel usually means all 12 tribes or all the people in the northern kingdom. All right? 1 Kings 12, all 12 tribes, because of King Solomon's sin, split. So 10 tribes were in the north, were called Israel. Two tribes in the south were called Judah. And for the rest of the Old Testament, it's Israel and Judah. But every once in a while, God will still refer to Israel in the all-tribal sense. He will still do that. Uh, Joshua 3.17. The priest carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan, right? But then you see this in 1 Samuel 17. You see a distinction. So that was all Israel, but then you see this in 1 Samuel 17, 52. The men of Israel and Judah 
rallied, showing that their battle cry, so you get that, you see this, well, I'm not going to read the rest of the passage. You see that Israel now is looked at as a separate from Judah. It's not all 12, it's the 10 tribes, Israel. That happens interchangeably in Scripture. And part of the challenge in reading the Bible is who is he talking about? So I have to look at context and I have to see, okay, oh, okay, Israel and Judah. So he's talking about the 10 tribes. This is what happens. Then you got Jacob or the house of Jacob, right? That usually describes all the 12 tribes and all the people that belong to Jacob. Now, in the Old Testament, they saw that as only ethnic, physical descendants. But we know as God's revelation continues that the house of Jacob and all the people belong to him include Gentiles. Not just by faith in Jesus, ultimately, yes, but even from a physical sense. So you get this in Isaiah 14.1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will choose Israel again. So he's equating Israel and Jacob as the same. He will settle them on their land. The resident alien will join them and be united with the house of Jacob. You got Amos 3.13. He says, listen and testify against the house of Jacob that this is a declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. So in this, he's talking about all of them, northern and southern tribes. That's a name that's interchangeable. Ephraim, we know, is one of the 12 tribes, but Ephraim is also described as the northern kingdom. So Ephraim is synonymous with Israel in describing the northern 10 tribes. And here's a passage to prove it. Isaiah 17, 717, the Lord will bring on you, your people and your father's house, such a time as never have been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will be like the king of Assyria. He will bring the king of Assyria. So you see, Ephraim separated from Judah. Well, Ephraim wasn't in Judah. Ephraim's in the northern kingdom. Judah's in the southern kingdom. So when he says Ephraim separated from Judah, he's saying Israel separated from Judah. So Ephraim is equated with the northern kingdom. Israelites are usually described as ethnic descendants, but they're also just the exiles returning from Judah. Let me say this. So when the northern kingdom was taken in 722 by the Assyrians, they never returned back to their land. There was never an edict by anyone to send the northern tribes back to where they came from. In fact, they got so misplaced that they are often called as the lost 10 tribes of Israel. No one knows what happened to them. The southern kingdom, Judah, they were allowed to go back to, um, to their land and rebuild the temple and stuff like that. They were given that, that responsibility. So the Israelites are both the nation, all the Jews, but then it's also just the people, the Israelites that they know came back because they don't even know where all of them are. To this day, it's still called the lost 10 tribes of Israel. Of the northern, no one knows what, where those. If you read the Apocrypha, there's some language that some of those tribes went very north of the northern kingdom and found prosperity up there, but they, they never came back in the same way that Judah did. Mm-hmm. So, Ezra 617, for the, for, the dec, for the dedication of God's house, they offered 100 bulls, 200 lambs, and 400 rams, as well as 12 male goats as a sin offering for all Israel. One for each Israelite tribe, right? So they recognize, so the Israelites represent to them all Israel, all the tribes, but then it also means just the exiles that came back from Judah. Nehemiah 8.17, the whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites, remember, they, the, the whole community that had returned made shelters. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. So those who came back, from exile, are called the Israelites because they're at least part of the 12 tribes. So that name is interchangeable. Then you get the name Jews. The name Jews. The reason why the name Jews exists is because Jews is a nickname of Judah. This is where Jews came from. The reason why they called themselves Jews is because when they came back, they didn't know who was who. All they knew was who are the people well, Judah was the only part of the, of the kingdoms that came back, people from Judah who were in captivity. That's the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. All right, Daniel is the captivity of, of, of Judah, mm-hmm. right? The book of Daniel. So they come back, and they're like, well, who are, well, you can't just say, well, we're, Jew, we're from Judah. So we're like, well, only Judah came back. The only Israelites that came back were Judah. So Jews became a nickname to say we're the Jewish people that came back from the exiles, and we're the people that believe in Yahweh. So if you're a Jew, that meant 
You're just one of the people that believe in Yahweh because they have no idea where everyone else is. The only people they can identify are the people that came back from Judah. So Jews became a derivative of saying, I'm one of the exiles that came back from Judah. And that name is also interchangeable. Now, before Jesus, that's what a Jew meant. It just became people who, first it was those who came back from Judah. Then it became the people who believe in Yahweh. But then when Jesus came, a Jew also meant the people who believe in Jesus. And we'll see that in just a second. So in Ezra 4.12, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came from you have returned to us at Israel, at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city, finishing its walls and repairing it, its foundation. Right? So he's saying that these are, these are Jews coming back from Jerusalem. John 4.9, it says this. How is it that you, a Jew, this is Jesus talking to the woman at the well. How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. See, in Jesus' day, Jews were people who follow Yahweh. The Samaritans were not. And they were also, in their minds, fully ethnic people that have come from the region of Judah. Very few people. There's a reason why, and you'll see this in your Bibles, there's a reason why the majority of the apostles never identify where they're from. Do you know that? Only Paul is the only one that says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. He's the only one that says that. That I can recall. I, I, I'm, almost, I'm almost positive. I don't remember John, Peter, James, none of them saying they're from what tribe. Only, only, and Paul only does it to give credence to I know who I am. And so in Philippians 3, when I'm rejecting all of that, like when he said I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a, a, a Benjamite, Paul's saying I know who I am. Most of you don't even know where you're from. Most of you don't even know who you are. I know where I'm from, and I'm rejecting all of that national, that ethnicity to follow Jesus. None of the other apostles identify where they're from because no one knows where they're from. So Jews becomes the name to say we're the people that God has chosen ethnically. That's what it means. But then after Jesus, Paul says this in Romans 2, for a, Jew, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision not, is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So here's the battle in the New Testament. A lot of people, I think, focus on ethnicity. Paul is not describing who's an ethnic uh, Israelite versus he's saying who are the Jews and the Jews are both ethnic but also people who believe in Jesus Gentiles so the battle in the New Testament for Paul is I'm, I'm redefining who a Jew is and in that day when Paul was saying that a Jew meant ethnic Israel from the 12 tribes so how are you calling these people saying we're not real Jews and they are and he connects it to, well, they're Jews because they believe like Abraham did. And that promise to save the people was connected to them believing the way Abraham did. But it's deeper because the Gentiles are also physical descendants of Abraham as well. The next name is the church. And we know that the church is believers in Jesus, plural, universal. Ephesians 1.22, when he subjected everything under his feet and, and appointed him as head over everything for the church. And then Christian is an individual believer in Jesus in the, a part of the larger body of the church. And 1 Peter 4.16. Actually, no, Christian is only used four times in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. It's not a popular name. It says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in having that body. And then lastly, the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 12. So the problem is there's a difference between being an Israelite, ethnic, and a Jew. The Israelites thought, well, we're the same thing. We're ethnic, physical descendants, and that's what we're now Jews. But that's just a name. Jew is not an ethnicity. It's just a different name chosen to represent the people of God. The church is not an ethnicity. It's not largely Gentile with a few Jews coming in. It's it's just a different name that represents the people of God, the people who believe in Jesus in this particular part of the progressive revelation. 
And what Paul is trying to say is, look, all Israelites are Jews, but all Jews are not Israelites. All Jews aren't Israelites. All Israelites are Jews, but all Jews are not Israelites. Israelites being an ethnic physical descendant. They're all Jews, but there are Jews that are not Israelites. They're not ethnic physical descendants. That's his point in Romans 2. For a person is not a Jew who was one outwardly. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who was one inwardly. Now, Paul still has that distinction of Jew and Israelite. He has that distinction because he says this in Romans 9, verses 3 through 8. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who was God over all, praise forever. Amen. Now, but it's not as though, the, now, that, that, so you get that, right? So it's clear, the Israelites are these people. And this is what he means. What he, this language here is what he describes as the cultivated olive tree. This is the root, the people who were given all of this because of Abraham. This is the root, right? This is what he's talking about. But then in the same passage, he switches it up. Look at verse 6 of Romans 9. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You see what he's getting at? Not all of the people who are descended. Now he's talking about faith and belief. So not all who are descendants of Israel are the 12 tribes, all the people that come from Abraham. They're not all technically Israel. He's breaking the ethnicity identity. Don't think, no, no, when we talk about descendants of Abraham now, we're not talking about people who were born with his bloodline. We're talking about people who believe in the blood. So he's changing it. It's changing. He's moving it along. Jews that believe are welcome into the church, but the church is not an ethnicity. It's just a different name for the people of God. The house of Jacob has, from the beginning, had a mixed DNA. Mixed DNA because of Manasseh and Ephraim. National Israel is at the same time international. International at the same time. So when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and all Israel will be saved, it Paul says here in Romans 11, it's according to the promise that he made to Abraham. It's according to that promise. I do not believe he's, he's saying all Israel are ethnic Jews and Gentiles who are the elect. I do not think he is uh, combining or he's saying it's just the elect Jews that will believe or that he's talking about a future declaration of a salvation for Israel. I think he's literally saying all Israel will be saved because the Gentiles are both physical and spiritual descendants of Israel. Mm-hmm. Not every Gentile, but the fact that some Gentiles are mixed into that God extended that promise to always include Gentiles. Not just because we spiritually believe, and we are grafted in a sense, but there are Gentiles whom God elected to be a part of the nation of Israel and part of Israel as the the way salvation comes. I'm going to close with this passage, and I'm just going to read the passage, and you listen to what he says in Ephesians 2, and you let this sit with you. Ephesians 2, in closing. 11, 211 through 313. This is what he says, Paul writing. The same Paul who is saying this in Romans 11. Here's what he says. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. It's important language. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel without God and without hope in the world. Why are they excluded from the citizenship of Israel? Because they, they're a part, they were supposed to be a part of Israel. They're excluded from the citizenship because salvation goes to Israel. But it's not ethnic Israel. And if it is, it's because the Gentiles are included in that ethnicity. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one 
and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. I need to say this. One thing you have to understand is that part of the challenge for Paul in their day was that the, the, fight, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. That's the point. So what he's trying to communicate is that in Christ, he tore the hostility down because now you Gentiles are included as citizens of Israel. Salvation always is a promise made to Israel, but he's getting ready to say you will become citizens of that now. He's not saying, no, the Jews who believe are a part of what you're doing or that I'm talking. No, he's saying that you are part of the citizenship of Israel. In Paul's mind, he still understands that salvation is a promise made to Abraham, extended to Israel. But part of Israel, as we know, physically, descendants even, is Gentile. So he says this, verse 10. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints, right? Who were the saints? Israel, ethnic Israel, and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. And what does he write above? That you were excluded from citizenship of Israel, but now you're included in that citizenship of Israel. Because salvation is always in Israel. You're just a part of Israel. Verse 15, this was not made known to people in other generations that it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace, this grace was given to me to the least of all saints to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. And to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Listen to this language. He says the manifold wisdom of God that has been a mystery. The significance of this mystery is what? That you Gentiles are a part of Israel's salvation. That you're included in Israel's salvation. Paul is calling that this magnanimous reality. That I am here. And if you think about how significant this is, Paul is the 12th apostle after Judas hangs himself. Paul is specifically given the authority to preach to the Gentiles and bring salvation in. And God allows Paul to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He wants the Gentiles to know and the Jews to know y'all are together. And it's always been this way from God's plan. Ethnic Israel has always had some Gentile in it. National Israel is at the same time international. And Paul's declaring this as a magnificent truth. Look at verse 10. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ, in Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. So salvation is broad, serpent, it narrows to Abraham, it narrows to Isaac, it narrows to Jacob, it narrows to David. And then in Jacob, there is Jew and Gentile in terms of ethnicity mixed from the beginning of the 12 tribes. One of those tribes includes Gentiles in it. Their, their responsibility, their prophetic responsibility given by God is to be a multitude of nations. And God is making a covenant with them as well. It's always had Gentiles in it from the beginning. So when all the fullness of the Gentiles, when they're saved, all Israel is saved. That's because the Gentiles are part of Israel and have always been from the beginning. And salvation is only and always a promise made 
to Abraham that extends to Israel. And now everyone becomes a citizen of Israel in the, not the ethnic sense, but in the covenantal promise that God made sense. That's where we become a part of that reality. This is why I believe what I believe. Let's pray. Father, we, 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 just, we thank you for just the reality of your word and the, the, just the amazing, intricate way your word just, just, just connects together. It, it's, it's, almost, it's almost laughable on some level, to me at least, when people mock the Bible, when there's no book that's so, even with some of its challenges and transcribal errors, there's no book that clearly ties in so many dynamics like this, especially written over a couple thousand years period. It's not like someone just wrote all of this down in two years and presented it. This has been recorded long before they knew the other parts would exist, and they come together beautifully to tell a, or show an amazing tapestry of, of your grace and mercy towards all humanity. A promise to one man promise to one man whom you create a unique nation from becomes a unique man who you expend salvation to many nations. Thank you for this reality and this truth. May we be encouraged by this and as we get specifically back to the end of Romans 11, may we celebrate as Paul celebrates at the reality that all Israel will be saved for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.